Welcome to Breaking the Chain, where we deep dive into the lives and experiences of entrepreneurs looking to shake up, change, and innovate their industries. In this podcast, we explore the challenges, successes, and everyday ups and downs of individuals fighting in the trenches for their dreams to become a reality. I'm your host, Nathaniel Chapman. Today, I speak with Saad Sawar, CEO and founder of Level 99, responsible for bringing brands to life in the ever-expanding esports ecosystem. Welcome to episode three of Breaking the Chain. Today, I'm joined with Saad Sawar, who's founder and CEO of Level 99, which is an esports well, marketing company. He has an incredible story. I'm really excited to have him on board, mainly because esports has become one of the fastest growing, most innovative areas. If we look over the last year, gamers are now being recognized as professional athletes. So for those of you tuning in, esports is literally how it sounds. It is sports for video games and games. They now have over 205 million viewers worldwide. Actually, that's probably gone up. And even on Twitch, you can have up to 800 million views playing video games and even large prize pools of money for these teams going up to $18 million USD. And I think everybody has heard of the Fortnite kid and the people who are making millions in this industry, and now it's becoming completely professionalized. And I'm really excited to have Saeed on here so he can give us a bit of background on his business and who you are. So thanks so much for coming on. Hey, man, Nathaniel, thank you so much for having me on. We bonded over games. It seems like that's the thing that most grown men do nowadays. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about video games. Yeah, a lot of that. So thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. No, don't worry. I think it's going to be so, this has been such an area I've wanted to explore in more detail. I think your company and you are the best way to do it, especially for anyone tuning in. If this is your first episode, we love to look at industries and ideas where companies can kind of come out or create whole new industries for certain businesses. And your business is is just that, you know, coming out of esports. So Do you want to maybe just give us a quick intro to your business and your company and who you guys are? Sure. Yeah, no, I'll do the elevator bit. Everybody has a bit of a summary. We, So we kick off in 2015. And to summarize what we do, we connect brands with esport audiences. So I'm going to say that, you know, and break it down a little bit. But all that means is if you are a brand that is looking at esports or looking at gaming and you're unsure what to do, Either you're building an audience and sort of trying to connect to that esport audience, we will do that through a variety of ways. I can give you some examples later. Won't bore you with them now. If you already engage with an audience who play video games competitively, and a lot of people won't realize that they already do, then we can help kind of heighten that engagement. So those are the two things primarily that we handle. And above and beyond that, we also work on sort of branding and creating identities in the space. So we've worked with some really cool brands and teams to build sort of their own IP. So that's us in a in a nutshell. I hope that summarizes it. Someone's going to tell me off for missing something. But <laughs> I think that's good. We talked about this before, but it's becoming such a market for even professional sports teams. You know, it's it's not oh, yeah. just that these are people in houses and, and kids building these teams. They're getting backed by massive organizations, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great sort of transition to me thinking a little bit more about all the teams involved. I think over the last few years... I'm not going to name all of the list of sports luminaries who are involved or celebrities that are sort of involved in gaming today, but the list is long. We specifically work with, and we're, I think, still quite 
you know, appreciative of the fact we get to work with the New York Mets and the ownership group behind the New York Mets who kicked off their eSport sort of uh, journey in 2017 and are still going strong. So did I think that we'd be working with the New York Mets yeah. <laughs> running eSports and gaming with them? No, I, you know, I wouldn't have called that a couple of years ago, but uh, the space has definitely changed quite a bit, right? Yeah. And you and I have talked about it, that direction and how all of us kind of are brought together through gaming, right? And for esports in general, I suppose, why do you think there's been a catalyst for this kind of growth over the last four mm. years? Because we'll start to get into your background, and I'm really excited to dive into where you've come from, because I think your story is really incredible, and you've kind of grown with the industry itself. But it's obviously become massively more popular across a range of different games, across bigger audiences. Why now, or, or why has it kind of gotten to the scale it is? Yeah, you know, that's something... I used to have to explain this to, you know, my dad <laughs> growing up, uh, you know, why I wanted to play games. And I think that shift in sensibility, sort of how the family unit looks at, or even, you know, those as part of family look at video games and how they perceive video games. I think that's changed a great deal. And why do I say video games and, you know, not esports off the bat? Esports is essentially the competitive component of playing the game, right? It's the hyper competitive. It's you trying to be the best at that game, that would be the esport component of the game, right? And why I think it's grown so much in the last few years is, you know, I'm not saying anything that others before me have also said, but essentially we've been able to connect with one another. It's just been far more accessible, right? The internet is cheaper, faster, you know, easily available. That makes playing games online very easy mm -hmm. across sort of communities, wherever you are in the world. And then above and beyond that, you know, this acceptance of video games into from being on the fringe or sort of the, you know, I have the basement conversation a fair bit about gamers in their basements. I think, you know, that's gone, that's been gone for so long or so, so much longer than we think that gaming is now very firmly part of culture, right? It's, it's no longer on the fringe. It is, you've heard of, you know, you opened it up this way as well. You've heard of folks who are playing games and doing really well playing games, and you've heard of how well games are received by people who play them, right? I think we're just at a really unique time where, you know, the merging of technology, really advanced technology, and the ability for games to also be played for free, which is the sort of more popular model nowadays, it's like a perfect little storm. This isn't the storm that ravages across lands. This is the one that, you know, picks you up and takes you to a happy place. So yeah, I think we're just at a really good point in time right now. It's funny to me, I was watching one of the videos that you guys have got up on your LinkedIn page and it was talking to some of these professional gamers and doing like interviews with these guys. And it's actually opened my mind up a little bit because you used to think of like someone who just played video games. It's like, this sounds horrible, but your family or my parents would be like, don't waste your time. You know, like stop right. wasting your time playing video games, get outside, be outside. You know, and it's almost gone from that to, oh my God, you could actually make a career out of this. You know, you can now actually be paid a salary and be on a professional team. And we've talked about the professional, you know, markets in the United States and worldwide. Oh, yeah. um, I just find that so incredible that we've kind of come full circle. You, you have kids that when I was in high school, they'd be getting ready and they're thinking they're going to go pro in the NFL. And it's socially acceptable for them to be putting all their heart and soul into it where you wouldn't have had that with video games like 20 years ago, right? They'd be like so the fringe true. people. That would be, if you were saying, look, I'm training to be a professional video game person, you 
could get laughed at, you know, and that's right. completely changing now, right? I mean, could, definitely that's being kind. <laughs> I'd say, yeah, you'd get a couple more than a laugh, so, without a doubt. That's changing massively, man. I think, you know, just on that note, when you talk to some of these guys and girls who play games competitively, you start to realize, just like in more traditional sports, there's a broad range of personalities, right? These people are made up of, you know, the same kind of drive and ambition and hunger and they're superstars. That It sort of mirrors what you'd expect from traditional sports because the way they view the game, when you speak to them, and I'm sure, Nathaniel, you've checked a couple interviews out yourself a fair bit, you know, in terms of how these guys are presenting themselves, they, they think the way that an athlete thinks. They are an athlete. You know, I'm not saying they're trying to be one. They look at this competitive pursuit as, I want to be the best, you know, or we want to be the best. How do we get there? And so they're reading the same things. They're going through the same type of coaching. A lot of the teams have performance coaches. They have psychologists. They have trainers. You know, they work hours. They put in practice. They work on strategy. They've got, some of them have got 10, 15 people, you know, on their support staff working on strategy for their games. So for them, it's, you know, they're having the time of their life like they yeah. would if they were going to join the NFL, but this is what they want to do and this is what they love. So they put the same sort of love into it, I think, you know? Well, it's such a natural evolution, right? You start to see there's money that starts to come into it, the promotion that goes into the games, promotion, and all of a sudden you've got now the resources to really, you know, become that competitive athlete. You know, you look at professional teams that are the best in what they do. They do a lot of really different activities. They're always experimenting with different ways to become the best. And if they're not, you know, like the, if we take rugby, for instance, which is probably the easiest example for me to use, because that's what I've played. Uh, <laughs> but the All Blacks, they do weird, not weird, but they'll do things like yoga, or they'll do things like ballerina training and, and whatever they can use to get an edge. And, you know, all the sports staff and all that stuff that existed before is, is one thing, but you're now seeing that. So the same principles be applied to gamers and they need to make sure that they're eating right they've got the right diet they've oh, they're yeah. getting enough sleep they're doing enough practice and training and they're looking at tactics so yeah it's pretty incredible to see wh i think where it's going and where it's come from you know as soon as you mentioned the all blacks i wanted to add something to the degree of how much respect esports has for traditional sports because remember these are young people who when i didn't have the grace popping out the side of my head and in my beard, I was one of them. But these are people who admire professional athletes, you know, we're inspired by the greatest athletes. They don't, they're just like everyone else. We're just looking for the same sorts of inspiration. And what we did was, funny you mentioned the All Blacks, as when Level 99 was formed, we helped put together a team that's called OG. So OG Dota was the original name and they've gone on to become a hugely successful team by virtue of their own successes and their own hard work. But when we were designing their jerseys, you know, I was just going through this the other day when we were reminiscing. And I noticed that some of the inspiration that we put together for their jerseys, one of them was the All Blacks. You know, we look to those. So it's not just the, the professional athlete. It's also what are they wearing and how do they come across and what sort of image does that present to their opponents and to that, you know, we think and we seek inspiration from traditional sports. So yeah, we've seen the All Black jersey a fair number of times. It's still one of the best. I don't know. What do you think? You're you're a rugby man yourself. <laughs> what I find really fascinating about e like esports, regardless of what the game is being played, you've got 
individuals that obviously they wear jerseys. So if you go and watch these events in a stadium, if, if you're listening, and you haven't seen it. And I definitely mm -hmm. encourage anyone listening now to check it out because it is really cool. These guys go in and they all are wearing jerseys, but then within certain games, they can have certain skins as well, right? So you can have actually in-game components to what you wear or, you know, what actually identifies you as a team, but you also then have something that you then show up to the events on the day as well. And yeah, I think it all plays into it, right? Whether how you get in an opponent's oh, head yeah. and probably even more so, you know, a lot with video games because so much of it is mental, right? And so much yes. of it is like, can't really make up for the fact that maybe mentally you're not where you're supposed to be, you know, with physicality or something, because it's coming out in the game. So, yep. so I just really found it like, Really cool. And actually, we'll dive into this a little bit further on, but the commercial ability then to then sell those jerseys or those in-game skins or those other things have become, you know, revenue sources, which in traditional sports are massive, right? Like yes. if you look at David Beckham when he went to the LA Galaxy for football or soccer for our American uh, <laughs> contingents that they're listening yeah. in, you know, jersey sales they made from just him making that move because people were like this is a ridiculous buy. You know, they bought him for a ridiculous amount yep. of money and then they released those jerseys and they made all their money back. Like within, I think it was like, like a month or something. It was insane. But the idea that now people that have a passion for video games, they really do have something maybe they can relate to. I mean, I know a lot of gamers do also like traditional sports, but other people maybe have always really liked video games and now they can kind of have a team that they support and back and you know buy a jersey for. Yeah, and that's it. You're doing my job for me. That's, <laughs> I'd say exactly the same thing. That loyalty to players specifically in esports, I think just differs between how we view or how a traditional sports fan would look at sports. So at least for sports teams, right? So a lot of the most popular games are team games. They're no longer the one versus one. They're not while esports compares itself to tennis a great deal in terms of how it's organized and their opens and masters and events, you don't root for, you know, when you're supporting Beckham, you, if you're a Galaxy fan, you support Galaxy. If you're a Madrid fan, you support Madrid. Mm -hmm. You have your clubs, right? In esports, there's a lot of focus on the individuals. So if the individuals move teams, that loyalty, that love for those, that admiration for those, you know, stars, it goes with. Right. Um, and so there's a, that its own challenge that esports is kind of figuring out things that sports did many years back, but also is quite far ahead. You know, you talked about items in game. Listen, a lot of the most popular games are free to play. You can go and download them. And if, if you've got kids and someone on this call has got kids, yeah. <laughs> you know, someone on the years ago, if you ask them what they play, you'll find that the game and to download the game they play is probably free in most cases, not all, but in most. Now, that means that within the game, there's an opportunity for the publishers of those games to sell you aesthetic or more visual items that, you know, purely cosmetic. That's right. And that's a big thing. That's kind of, you know, the path that esports is laying out. And I they're think. making so much money because they're taking away the barrier to entry. So people can, anyone can play it. And then, you know, you might right. want to, Yep. To have your favorite team skin, or have it's becoming massive with a lot of different games, um, which is really fast. So, is that a lot of the stuff that even you can work on now? Is that oh, okay, we're gonna develop this skin for a certain team, and then people can buy it, you know, online through these different pathways, and then obviously the game owners probably take a cut of that cost, but then the team takes the rest. So, worthy question. I think that if you're looking at that through the eyes of a team. 
a team would engage. At the end of the day, the difference between sports and esports is that nobody owns a sport. Mm. Nobody owns. If I wanted to put together a basketball league and not call it the NBA, I could do that, right? I, I'd be within my right to set up a league and say, here are all the teams in London that play basketball and off we go, right? In the case of video games, the esport is owned by the publisher of the game. Right. So therein lies the, you know, you can see a whole sort of root of different things that opens up, but therein lies the challenge. So you've got to, if you are creating a skin, you've got to work with the publisher of the game. And most of the teams will most likely be given, you know, the sort of uh, directive from the publisher and say, we've made this, what do you think? And whilst that still works, we're working towards an ecosystem that allows for a more open flow. So we can help with that. And we have designed items in the past. Colleagues of mine, our art director, Matea, has done a set in a game called Dota 2. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's voted in by the community and then approved by the publisher. And then that's how they would sort of generate a sort of a, a revenue. But we're figuring out those crossroads, you know? It's still very early days, as you say. When you mention the individual players having a following, and I think part of that is quite similar to you know, professional sports, right? You might have a favorite player that moves to a new team and you still want to follow that team because you like that player. But I think what's really interesting is through things like Twitch and through, you know, I think everyone can who's even listening in has heard that people can watch people play video games, right? Through different platforms. And that it's almost a little new age because it's not like you can have a personal relationship with let's say, a, you know, A-Rod uh, with the New York Yankees <laughs> where you're yeah. actually watching him play and he's engaging with you because on these things, basically people can watch these players playing their favorite game, but also engage with them directly, comment, you know, put prizes in, whatever. And they get to engage directly with their their audience. And the listeners and the viewers can be insane. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of this, you know, 800 million plus views through Twitch, you know, in a year. That's insane. Yeah. And I guess that's where they can build up their own kind of personal brand and following where then they move clubs and teams. They bring that sort of following with them. Oh yeah, without a doubt. I think we're seeing that in more established esport titles. Remember that esport games, they need to sort of live a long enough time to build a healthy environment for players and new players. And in terms of what Twitch provides, I think what Twitch did was, and for me, I just like to see everything in the simplest way possible. What Twitch did was, you know, if I was a fan of everybody's probably watched The Last Dance by this point, so let's just <laughs> rope in Michael Jordan into this yeah. example. Michael Jordan, interestingly enough, is an investor in an esports business as well himself. Oh my so, God, really? Yeah, That's he's cool. already involved behind a fund called Axiomatic, I believe, who have invested in a team called Team Liquid. So he's already doing it. But let's pull it as an example. What Twitch allows you to do is you could literally, Michael Jordan could be, become the broadcaster while he's practicing. And while he's practicing, you can see what he sees. And essentially you're able to communicate and you said chat, spot on. You can chat with him and engage with him live. So that experience, you know, esports has removed that barrier between you and, you know, the superstar. And that's what Twitch does. It just allows, imagine if you could watch, tune into Michael Jordan nowadays probably playing golf let's just <laughs> let's just call it for what it is but if you could and you'd watch what he watched and he could you could talk to him and he could talk back that's what twitch does but for gaming crazy basically. and it's a yeah. must obviously open up so much opportunity for you as well as a marketing business 
I want to kind of take us back a little bit before we jump into a lot of this, because obviously your passion for video games started when when you were quite young, right? And actually you hadn't thought maybe you'd even go into working in esports, but it's something that, so I kind of want to take us back. So where did your kind of passion for gaming come from? And yeah, what's, what's your story? Okay, so for me, I'm trying to think how far back we go. So for me, I grew up in the Middle East. I grew up in Dubai. And, you know, for those who know of Dubai today, I think we have this perception. You, you see what Dubai is today. When I was growing up, it was a, it was literally a desert. There were two lanes that linked the entire city <laughs> together and a couple buildings. And I think growing up in the Middle East, the means by which you connect with other people outside your you know region, a lot of things were blocked. I remember back in the day, I couldn't even go to the Harry Potter website because it was blocked. <laughs> you know, so video games... And for me, it was Counter-Strike growing up. I think it was around 2000. Counter-Strike became almost, you know, an unforgettable and still is part of my life because playing Counter-Strike and going to land centers back then where you sort of go to a place, you get the computers that are yeah. state-of-the-art, you play with your friends, you connect with other people, you're building a small community. When I was a kid, my dad, sorry to cut you there, because this is really no, no, cool no, part to talk yeah, about. You probably have a similar, yeah. Yeah, well, it, it was really neat because I remember my first introduction to video games was my dad linked two computers together at home to play Doom, and they were on floppy disks. <laughs> I, you know, you used to put in like seven, eight pl floppy disks to download one game. Yeah. And we hooked up these, and because my dad, in his back, he's a computer architect, so whiz when it comes to that sort of stuff anyway. But we hooked these two computers up to play like co-op on, and it was pretty advanced <laughs> at the time on these floppy disk, you know, games and things like Tomb Raider and whatnot. But yeah, you used to show up for these LAN as, you know, going years later, and you'd have games like Serious Sam and oh, the original Jedi. Yeah. And yeah, these rooms and these conference centers would just be, you know, packed out. Yeah. Oh my God. Isn't it amazing? I think this is the amazing thing. In whenever I'm sharing parts of this my own personal story with gaming, someone has always had some gaming has touched them in some way. They might not have been a crazy gamer, but at some point you've tried a game and you generally have you're pretty positive about your experience playing games, yeah. right? It, what it brings you, and it's amazing that you also had you know again you've had something similar. Did you? I guess you know before I continue to dive in. After that experience, did you continue playing games? Did you find a love for games or did you get the time? Yeah, to I still play games. Yeah. yeah. If <laughs> I had amazing. more time, I'd be on my Xbox more often. I love right it. Right now, my the game of choice is Warzone, which I'm enjoying like no tons. Way. Yeah. Well, it's free and I didn't have to download the... See, I'm one of those barrier to entry individuals. Love it. Downloaded it. And the fact that it's cross-functional, so you can play it on your Xbox or your PS4 or oh, PC... Yeah actually connected me to more of my friends during COVID now because I've always been an Xbox guy and a lot of my friends have always been PlayStation people and we've never been able to, to play together. Right, right. And a lot of these free-to-play games, which are these, you know, they are actually allowing it to be cross-functional, which is like a complete game changer. Do you know when that happened? I'm sure we'll go into this at some point, but that happened because I believe, I'm somebody's going to prove me wrong, but from what I remember... Once Fortnite had reached the peak of its, or not even peak, but it was in that sort of upward climb that didn't seem to be stopping anytime soon, Fortnite was able to unite the, you know, or so epic games more so than Fortnite is just a game that they make, but they were able to unite the platforms, yeah. the consoles. And since then, cross-play has become a, it's amazing. So you're playing with friends on a PlayStation, you're on your Xbox, and I'm on my PC 
proving to them that mouse and keyboard always Way better. wins. Yeah, <laughs> My, I've got friends of mine in um, in Amsterdam. They're big avid PC guys, and they just wipe the floor. Like you know, you just can't compete. But uh, I mean, you should watch some of the console players. I tell you, if I saw one of those in a game, I think I'd run because <laughs> they make they make console gaming look like it's. Uh, you know, me at my best possible imaginable version on the PC. So they're killing it on the sticks as well. It's amazing. When you used to watch these, uh, I, I remember, sorry, I don't feel like I'm detracting from your origin story, but um, <laughs> all. I like growing up, it's funny that there's some of my most distinct memories, like going to that lion thing with my dad. And, and then as games sort of progressed, I remember getting my first Xbox and playing Xbox Live from home which I got for Christmas and it was insane to me like that we were playing with these, you know, everyone had their mic on back then as well. It wasn't like a quiet room. So you'd have like, you know, an eight game player on like Wolfenstein or something like that or some old game and everyone's talking. Like everyone was having a chat in the lobby and it was just so bizarre to me. I just had this small little black and white TV I plugged it into because I think all the money went towards the <laughs> Xbox itself. But it's weird that, you know, you mentioned, I think everyone has a bit of this story. I think they do, especially if you look at like our generation, right? Like millennials and now you hear all the previous ones, but it's going to be such a big part, regardless if people just played it socially, like whether it was just like GoldenEye on Nintendo or, you know, mm -hmm. Counter-Strike or different games, which did become, either people played it or people got exposed to it, you know? Oh yeah. And I think, for our generation, we sort of were really lucky because when I grew up, Counter-Strike had just come out. There was nothing like it. For me, revolutionized the way I looked at games because it was strategic. It was, you know, very, very mechanically, you know, challenging. So you had to aim. There was a lot of teamwork. You know, it just, there was so much that it brought to the table that didn't exist. And today, you know, when I grew up, I had to buy Counter-Strike. Or if I went to a land center... I'd pay them so that I could play with others, right? Yeah. Counter-Strike went free to play, you know, for the first time. I believe it was last year, if not the year before. For the first time in, the game's been around 20 years. Yeah. So you can now, there is, as you know, we talked about it earlier, those barrier to entries are, they're disappearing, man. You can just jump on and play the game. That wasn't the case before. So it becomes easier and cheaper to access as technologies become cheaper, right? People are kind of in that mixture though, aren't they? I mean, there was a lot of chat about those phone games you'd get and they'd be free and then you oh, could yeah. buy the upgrades. And then you hear those horror stories of people like getting their parents' credit card and racking up, you know, thousands of dollars and it becomes quite addictive. But I think gaming industries have realized that actually they could get a lot more distance out of one game. It used to be you'd buy a game and then you'd have to buy an expansion pack or you'd get a couple free downloads and then they'd roll out a new game. But they're obviously seeing a lot of the potential of just saying, well, actually, we've already developed a really good platform. Let's just create lots more content and not even charge for that content, which is what I find really surprising a lot with these, these free to play. But like when I say content, I mean like maps and the ability to play it, but we'll actually charge for the stuff that's like, you know, you getting a new gun or speeding on your progression and they must still be making tons of money out of it because games are all sort of moving in that direction. Oh yeah, I think, you know, the key difference is, and by the way, I think when you have something good and you can buy more of it, most of us seem to rationalize that decision. Yeah. And gaming is one of those, you know, outlets. I think the difference is, is that it's got to the point where esports is, I'm not going to say a, this from a purist perspective, because I know people who've been around a lot longer than I have uh, probably have similar or differing opinions on this, but I think that 
esports prides itself on ensuring that there is no pay to win. Yeah. You know, there's a sort of a negative, you know, vibe associated with paying money to win. And so those mobile games that allow you to skip levels and get additional in a game, buy something that gives you an advantage over another competitor. In an esport game, all of that is removed. There is yeah. none of that. You've, you're on equal footing. You know, you got the same tools they've got. They can't have a sort of advantage by spending more money. So esports and the competitive component of video games, the community takes itself, you know, we take ourselves seriously. We want to battle it out on equal footing. Yeah. But yeah, without a doubt, those mobile games are there. Man, I've spent money on mobile games and I don't want to tell you how much. Yeah. <laughs> we, but so, yeah. fascinating to say, you, you make a really good point there because I remember a game came out. I, I don't remember if it was either Star Wars, it was Battlefield or something where you could pay to move up faster or you could unlock right, different games. Right. And there was a massive right. outcry. Like they lost money. They was. People yeah, just yeah. rejected the game completely and they had yeah. to basically change that strategy overnight. Be like, oh no, they we made it. a mistake. We'll release it all. But that it is quite cool that obviously people have that power to be like, no, this is the way we do want gaming to be. And you're right, that fair piece has always been a big part of it. But I think we've kind of digressed here, <laughs> which is fine. I think we do every time we speak together, which is amazing. So you're, you're in Dubai, you're yeah. getting this passion for video games, you're going to these lands, you're starting to kind of find your passion within this. What happened next? Yeah, so fast forward, I think that was where gaming or esports specifically became a big part of my life and essentially allowed me to connect with people outside the world that I knew day to day. You know, if you, for those who've lived or visited the old Middle East, it was a different world. And games like Counter-Strike opened, for me, opened me up to meeting people from all over the place and realizing that actually we're all very similar. Yeah. <laughs> we all love this game. And so growing up, it was a taboo topic to talk about. You know, my parents, my dad at least still talks about how he will never forget the name or the words Counter-Strike because I was suspended from school for skipping out and going to a land center, you know, multiple times. And so when I eventually left, I used to work in banking. And when I left banking to kind of follow up to something that I felt I'd already, you know, always connected with, and my dad heard Counter-Strike. He was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> this is, what, how did this happen 15 years this later? This thing I but, used to uh, discipline my kid for has turned into this, a career. Right, brilliant. Right, bad parenting. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he just, he, he even asked me like, is this real? You know, back in the day. Is this real? I'm like, well, I like it. I enjoy it. I Back in, you know, 2012 or 13, when I got to Fnatic, you follow what you think is something you, you'll enjoy and that you relate to. And then there are people around you that just lift you up. And I tell you yeah. what, the people in this space that we have, there are some amazing, like I've been, I don't want to call them all out, but there are some people that I just know have welcomed me and others with open arms where that I wouldn't have expected, you know, in any other sort of industry. So yeah, it's the gamers are generally gamers. I'm just using the word gamers for now. Generally really decent yeah. people, you know, they're used to playing games with people online and trying to find their way to get along to win a game, right? So and, and when you left, so you, you, you left the Middle East and came um, from Dubai and came to London. Was that kind of your first stop? And I went to university in uh, okay, Vancouver. Yeah. So I went to university at UBC, West Coast, Canada. Still think it's the best place in the world. <laughs> Beautiful. Just shouting that yeah. out. Um, 
some phenomenally good people all over there. And of course, a stunning place. After that, eventually went over to London and have kind of been back and forth between LA and London for the last couple of years because gaming, esports, pretty much lives and multiplies out of uh, yeah. LA. So with a base in London. So yeah, here I am. And what did you study at, at university? Oh, so I'm one of those people that had no idea where I wanted to head other than, listen, I just need to make sure I can make a living. <laughs> Sounds like most of us. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, went and did a management degree where I did majority of like finance and accounting, you know, a bit of everything, but uh, eventually ended up graduating during the global recession yeah. and working for a bank and kind of built a career eventually with HSBC out in London. And what were you doing there? So what kind of, what was your dream? So I was all commercial banking. So it was all primarily looking after small, medium businesses, sort of supporting them through their growth, helping them with, you know, approving lending, you know, making sure that they're figuring out where they're headed. Oddly enough, a business that I remember approving or signing off an account for many years ago, started sponsoring an esport team cool. <laughs> last year. They called Crep Protect. And I don't know if you heard of them, but they, if you're a sneakerhead or if you like your sneakers, you need a product that can make sure that they stay clean. Ah, right? I do have that. And this, I was like, you, I, was like right? I have no you idea what that is, but thing. I've actually got some right. of that. Right. <laughs> well, those guys, I remember walking in when they first started that business, yeah, I, I opened their account and approved some lending for them and all the rest. So, you know, I got to experience that at the bank and taught me Is a that, lot. That must be quite a cool thing to step into for your first job before you then start your own company or even go, you know, the, the next thing, which we'll talk about at Fanatic. But so you got to kind of see the procedure that businesses go through to uh, to acquire lending, I suppose, and, and how they go through that approval yeah. process. Yeah. That must be invaluable for you now as a business owner, because you can oh. be like, because that's sometimes the hardest thing for people to secure is just good finance options. Oh, more than I can ever put into words. I think what it gave me was an ability to connect with so many different people who own their own businesses. Mm. I think that was what it was at a young age, finally being introduced and sort of dealing with at a professional level, people who were really working hard to grow businesses. And, you know, those are the type of people I was meeting every day. So when you end up being in that type of environment, you just learn a thing or mm. two. The, the lending and the finance bit was the easy part. I think anybody can learn that stuff, but learning from the people who I met, what they were doing, why they did it, and, you know, them trusting me as their sort of banker and kind of guiding them through the stages of, okay, so if we need to lend money, why, how do we use it? And then I have to take a risk to approve something. You know, you kind of get an understanding of how businesses and business owners think and how they view risk. So I'm extremely grateful for the time I had there. That's cool. You know? So how many years do you, you were there for about quite a chunk, right? Three, four years? Yeah, man. About four, yeah, just about four years. And what yeah. kind of then, because you then stepped out to... A really good work at Fnatic, which is one of the world's biggest esports teams, and it became a direction that you went in. But what made you leave AHSBC? What kind of pivoted your career to to starting to work in esports? You know, as as obvious as this is going to sound, it was it just wasn't for me. I always thought to myself, what am I create? What am I making? What am I creating? How am I helping other people? And at some point it's the bank that makes the decision, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. It's their money. Yeah. <laughs> I think I wanted to have more impact on other people's lives and create something that I felt I could be proud of. And I just one day 
I was going through the rounds as you do, maybe early midlife crisis. And I just thought to myself, where is my heart? And what I found was when I was, you know, trying to almost collect time for myself or find time to think, I would go to video games. Yeah. I started playing Counter-Strike again. And I was like, you know what? This is clearly a part of me at this point. What's going on? You know, I remember Fnatic being a team that I followed growing up and watching them and seeing they had pro players and it was in the early days. And I used to watch a show, actually, a podcast, actually, which is why I love, you know, I'm more of a listener, but I've been blessed by you're you a today star, you're a star <laughs> to, to, now. to join one. You. <laughs> but, uh, you know what I mean? Hey, I was listening to a podcast with one of the Fnatic, still the Fnatic CGO, Patrick Sadamon, alongside two really respected sort of industry figures, uh, Duncan, Thorin Shields, and a young guy called Lurpus. Not as young anymore, but very experienced, used to be a pro player. And I was loving every episode. Yeah, I just loved hearing them talk about the game and you know the insights around strategy and the team. And I reached out and I said to Patrick, and I said, hey, I think there's a way to do this better. And he, as people do in gaming, who are just really decent people, he was like, you know, how? How would you do this? And that's eventually what led to me being an interview. Had you left HSBC at this point or were you still figuring it out or were you working at HSBC? I'd left HSBC on a, okay, I know that this is not the right place for me, but what I do need is some time to think what is. And it just ended up being where my, where I ended up, you know, spending my time was in gaming and wasn't, and that's how it happened. The reason, and I, sorry to stop you there, but there's, Something I kind of want to bring out to people that are listening now, because I, I get this, this is a really cool part of a topic for when people are looking to change their career path. This is obviously a really pivotal point for you as to whether or not, do I stay in the industry that I went to school for, or do I take a step back and leave what I'm doing and have the space to figure it out? And weirdly, because I went through a very similar situation, you know, I studied supply chain management and then I went to work at Target doing distribution operations and realized it also wasn't for me. And I think when I went to leave to then come to London and do, you know and go that path, I felt a lot of resistance from my parents. I felt a lot of resistance from people to be like, yeah, why? You know, you're making good money. It's what you wanted to do. But I needed that space. I needed to try to travel and, and figure it out. So was that sort of the same mindset for you as well? I was going, you know what? I just need to kind of figure out what does make me happy at this point. We might be symbiotic. <laughs> that is it. That is what it is. It is that... If you don't take the chance to try and figure out what's going on in the world around you, at some point, I feel like you're missing out. I feel like the worst thing, the way I saw it was, what's one of my childhood friends used to tell me, a quote his dad always used to say was, what's the worst that could happen yeah. if you do this thing? And if, you, if the worst that could happen is, is that you might end up trying something that you would have loved along the way, but it didn't make you money, you're not going to regret doing that thing. And on the chance that you do follow it and it leads to a career, you'll thank yourself or you'll probably hit yourself that you didn't do it sooner, yeah. you know? So it was just came to that. Like you say, you just wanted to explore and figure out where your passion, where your heart sort of wanted to rest. Well, and then right? you have this confidence. You have this time to reflect. You see something that you really like. You listen to this podcast. You message the COO. And sorry, that's where I cut you off last time, but... What, what, what did you say to him? <laughs> what did you kind of, how did you even approach him? So he was on Twitter. Pretty sure I can probably just, I've not deleted any of those tweets. So I'm pretty sure I can probably go back to my Twitter and find that tweet. But I eventually DM'd him on Twitter and said, love to get a chance at 
presenting how I think this could do better for you. And it was more about, hey, this is so compelling. Why aren't there people sponsoring this or involved with promoting this? Or, you know, it was more tying the commercial side with what they were doing because I loved the content. I knew the people watching it probably felt the same way. And that Twitter message went into them eventually saying, we should probably, you know, we are interviewing for a role. We should do that. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I didn't want to lose out on the opportunities. So I learned how to do a sort of a video interview. I was trying to look for that the other day, actually. One of the guys at Fanatic, I'm st- we're still in touch, asked me, like, do you have that old video where you were incredibly cringe <laughs> and <laughs> wearing a, you know? And I'm trying to desperately find it, but I sent them an in- interview, sort of a why I'd be worth talking to, because I didn't come from esports or gaming. And they were decent enough to invite me in for a formal interview. So well, you, you say yeah, decent enough, but this is all, so this is such a cool way of getting a job. And I think you're like the pitch perfect millennial <laughs> using Twitter to get your job and, and basing it off of the fact that you love video games is like, you know, I don't think our parents could ever have even fathomed that this could happen. Oh man, that happened. But yeah. you put yourself out there and you went and approached someone directly and you know, this becomes a common theme with people that end up getting where they want or even owning their own companies is that you went for it and then you made it, you know, you were creative enough to put this video interview together and send it across. That's what got you, you know, the interview. And I think that's incredible. And and you were going in at that time as to become, it was like a sales manager role, was it? It was exactly, yeah. So they were looking for somebody to rally the troops and figure out how they would grow this business from being something they love doing and you know, something that they knew was growing as more people, as we say, you know, had access to esports and what it was about. But they needed somebody to come in and say, okay, so how do we turn that into a business? How do we make a bit of money out of that and grow? And they gave me, when I eventually got in, they gave me full autonomy. You know, they didn't tell me what to do. They were just like, these are our goals and we'll give you all the time you need and the resources. We'll take you to events, which they did. We'll get you to network with the right people in this space so you have a open, more of an informed view of things and then do what you think is right. But this is what we're looking for. It was also a very, very opportune time. It was a small business at the time, right? No, a big group. It was. How it many was. people were in the business? Yeah. So there were four people. It was initially a mother and son sort of business and still is a family business. But back then... As Anne Matthews, or again, I owe a debt of gratitude yeah. to her. But uh, she, you know, is herself. She was based out of Australia. There was a little office that had been set up in London. And in there were two people primarily, Patrick that I mentioned earlier and Elroy, Elroy Pinto, who actually later went on to help us co-found 99. Oh, wow. So we still stayed close. And it was the two of them. And when they brought me and another dude on board, it was four of us in total. And Anne was in Australia. So yeah, we were four people in 2013. Like, so you come into this business, they're obviously making some sort of return, but and they're kind of giving you a blank slate to say, okay, we mm. improve this. You've got some ideas. But how do you even start? Like, what did you really implement and change there? So for me, it was more about, I think I was coming into it knowing that I'm going into a room with people who know far more than I do, but we both, or we all love the same thing, you know? And uh, that was a baseball. For me, it was, okay, I just want everyone here to know that I don't know more than you. Just because I'm being brought in to bring in or monetize what we're doing, I'm here to learn from you guys because there's a lot that I don't know. So what I ended up doing for my first couple months was I just shut up. I just had a notepad with me everywhere I went. And for those who'd met me in that first year, 
I just took notes. I, when I went for meetings, when I introduced myself, whatever it was, I took notes and I just shut up and I listened to people who knew more than me. And I still do, but back then it was, it was almost essential. And once I'd gotten enough of a perspective of, you know, what was going on in the space and what people were doing and why, only then was I able to say, all right, so what right now is making money for this business and what opportunities do we have? And not, you know, trying to take advantage of what was going on in the space, but more so, hey, we're, the space is experiencing esports, some serious growth. We've got partners who are paying us X amount. How do we go to X plus, you know, 10%, 20%, 30%? So it was initially just building out, you know, the relationships that they already had and seeing eye to eye with those people and going, hey, I don't want to take more from you than you've budgeted, but I want to show you why it's worth spending more money on this. So that was my first stop. I also realized that the, you know, you mentioned merchandise. We kind of kicked off that. It's almost like you've had this master plan, <laughs> but we talked about merchandise, right, early. And essentially merchandise was one of the significant, most significant drivers outside sponsorships for these businesses to generate money, right? These pro players and what they represented. And the Fanatic shop back then was built by a sort of a third party and a, another platform. And Anne Matthews was open enough to me going, well, you know what? I knew a, you know, a roadie and somebody else, one of the tech guys at Foo Fighters back then who told me about Shopify in 2013. And I was like, I'd really love to give this a shot because I think we could do some great things with it. And she was bold enough to just give me that space to go out and she's like, all right, go and do it and do it in stealth. And when it's ready, if we, you know, if we can use it. So when we built this out, we built it with myself and a, a young graphic designer they'd hired called Oliver. And once we built it out, they rolled it out publicly and sales were the highest they'd ever been because it was a stable platform, yeah. right? Things like that. I was able to tweak what they were already doing really well, make it better, and then just build on that and talk to new partners and say, hey, this is a world that's not going anywhere anytime soon. There are now venues filling up with people watching these events. There are, for me it was, I saw the attitudes and emotions that people had for the players they followed. Yeah. And you could just tell that that passion wasn't just going to disappear and it was almost going to infect the next generation. So yeah, a lot of guessing and a lot of hoping, but, uh, you know, I was lucky to work with those folks who believed in me. And, and you spent two years building up these different sales, but also wearing a lot of different hats. You know, I, I think that's the fun thing about joining a company of that size, right? You came in as a sales mm -hmm. manager in title, but you're also doing, you know, stuff that's really marketing and marketing projects. And you're probably working in a very entrepreneurial space, you know, and it's that size startup anyway, and getting the, the ability to go, hey, just go out and build this or go out and do this. And and then, oh, yeah. you know, seeing it turn around revenue. Is that kind of what led you to then go and want to start your own business? And what was your transition? How did you kind of go from, okay, you're, you're obviously having a great career at Fanatic. You guys are starting to grow. I think at the time you were about to leave, there was about 17 people. So the office had grown quite significantly. Oh, yeah. What kind yeah. of then said, oh, you know what, I'm going to, because it sounded like you were on an upward trek. You know, I think now what are they, over, a, I think over a hundred odd employees, whatnot. So They're, they've actually, I'm sitting in our office here at Old Street and they actually have a office space just down the road. Our office was also here, the first Fanatic office, just at this roundabout. So this is a quite an emotional place for me, but that transition was, you know, I didn't really know much about what an agency was. I didn't really know what skill sets were required for to run an agency. But within Fanatic, we recognized that we wanted to 
do more than just, as you say, with the many hats, do more than just sell badges on jerseys and inventory that more traditional sports teams would sell because we didn't have that sort of a local venue and repeat fans. And it was a different, more digital experience, right, for the sort of esport fan. And so I think the shift for us and for me personally was I wanted to spend more time coming up with ideas and campaigns. So we did a lot of cool campaigns with brands back in the day, antivirus brands like Avast. I think you can still Google that yeah. one, the Avast fanatic PR stunt that we pulled where we, we got players who were streaming on Twitch and we simulated a, a live hack, basically. And so their streams were taken down and we were using TeamViewer, of course, but uh, while they were live streaming. And so it got a lot of buzz. And then we announced an antivirus <laughs> sponsorship shortly after. So, you know, things like that I was able to do and I got a real taste for that stuff. I really enjoyed seeing what impact it had on, you know, we worked with a guy at Avast, Mark, Mark Jordan, still a guy I'm in touch with. He was just like, this is it. Like, this is great. The sentiment, you know, all the rest, the sort of attitude that people have toward our brand is shifting based on the stuff you guys are doing. And I thought maybe this is the direction I head. So I tried to do that within Fnatic and, you know, myself and Anne and Sam, we all had conversations at some point, the owners of the business. And eventually they said, listen, the Fnatic business, as you rightfully said, is growing so much. Why do you want to work on this agency kind of thing? And I said, if you could let me do it, I'd you know, I really appreciate it. And they did. They let me build out the, the what would become their sort of internal agency called Sanpa. I got to work with a bunch of different brands. At some point they said, listen, we've got to focus on our core business, which I to this day think was the right decision because look yeah. at them today. And I thought to myself, well, this is probably where one, they've got a CEO now. We've got a big solid team and shout out to Wowder, who is now the CEO of another UK esports team, one of the biggest called XL. They'd gotten a solid leadership team. They didn't, that core business was where they wanted to invest all of their time. And, and I thought, well, could we do this? You know, could I do this myself with people who I trust and dot, dot, dot and level 99. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, cool. Yeah. And I mean, you, you kind of, we've a little bit more about how, what led to that, but where do you even get started? So you obviously, you're kind of building a bit of, you're obviously making a name for yourself by working within Fnatic. You're meeting different teams. You're meeting different contacts. I guess slowly, indirectly, sort of building your network to launch something like Level 99. But where do you even start? So you go at this point, hey, we're going to part ways. What's your next step? You know what? The truth is, I didn't have, the only next step I had was, I now know where I want to head and what I want to do. But how to get there, I think I'll just make sure I have the right people around me first. So initially it was myself and a handful of now myself and Andrea, Andrea is still in the business. He's the other co-founder. His brother, Matea, is still here. Worked with a, uh, one of esports sort of luminaries, Kim Rom, who is with us. And so we worked with a couple others, Chris Hanna, who runs the Esports Observer, which is now, you know, the biggest sort of commercial go-to news outlet in gaming and esports, sold to the SBJ, Sports Business Journal. Kicked off with the right people. I think that's where I started. It was, the business would sort itself out if I had people by my side who were smarter than me at things that I wasn't particularly good at. And I can, if I list those, we'll be on another podcast. <laughs> so another hour long talk, but you know, that was step one. Step two was, okay, let's create some value. Let's do something that solves other people's problems. Like we've been doing in our own respective sort of roles. And we started by pure chance. 
So I'd met a player at Fnatic, a professional Dota player during my time there uh, by the name of Johan, Johan Sunstein. And he is still today somebody I consider one of my very closest friends. But we reached out. We finally got connected. He had gone to another team already. He wasn't at Fnatic for, you know, a year already. So we weren't sort of uh, talking while we were there or both of us had just left. We connected and he said, I'd love to do a project and this is what I want it to look like. And I'd love to build my own team and my own organization. And, you know, and I frankly just think the world of him. I think he's one of the most compassionate people I've met. And the other founders felt the same way. Andrea, my other co-founder, used to be a Dota pro himself. So he was actually on Fnatic's first ever Dota team. So he started his career being a pro gamer. So we come from different worlds, as you yeah. can imagine. But eventually we put together this team called OG. We branded it. We found a partner, Hitbox back then, who was a competitor to Twitch. Uh, what, our fourth partner at the company, Ramen, is actually somebody who used to work at Hitbox, who approved the Hitbox sort of sponsorship you know, that they were doing for OG. And then eventually left Hitbox and joined oh, us cool. <laughs> and is still with us today. So that's how we kicked off. We built this team. They went for their first event about 30 days after we'd created the brand and they won $3.1 million. Oh my God. What a massive like thing to just hit. Like, and you, oh. They did pretty well. And today you can, if you're on Google at some point today, somebody just type in, you know, the most successful or the highest earning teams in esports. And they are in the top three of all time. I think over $30 million in prize money won two back-to-back championships that no one has ever won before. They've done things. Of course, I have no, I have absolutely, we can take zero credit for those achievements. They did that. But it was just amazing to be part of the DNA of something that blossomed into that. Worked with them for a couple of years, for three years roughly, built out that foundation, worked with Red Bull, partnered with Red Bull to create a, so Red Bull, so Red Bull sponsors them in there, sort of in their logo as well. We built the the fundamentals and then they went and built their business. And yeah, we're still in touch today, of course, and doing things for them here and there. But there was no, this is a blueprint, let's do it. It was just, this is just a really good human being. And back in the day, his partner as well, uh, also a great guy, his uh, teammate. That's how it kicked off. You know, there was no master plan. It was just, let's see what happens if we work with people we really think the world of and vice versa and do the right thing. That's what probably provided you the template to then go out and, you know, have this service offering. I mean, how cool to, and I I hate to say luck. I always, you know, people always say there's luck behind it (laughs) because a lot of work went into that project. I mean, you were in the right place, but also you would have had to build that network, right? Like people have to have trusted you to dive into that type of project. So I don't like to use the word luck so much. I think obviously certain stars aligned and then it, it launched you into this, but how cool to be involved in a project like that, that would essentially lead to them winning countless money and, and earning so much revenue. But did that give you the platform then to really like have funding behind your business? Yeah, I think that, you know, we spot on, I think you were able to then as a group prove what we were capable of. But I think just before that, I think it's all about, so luck may be a big part of it. And regardless of the way we look at luck and perceive what or what it means to each of us. I think, I still believe that people do things with other people, mm. you know, it just as basically put, it was the relationships we had with people. And one of the businesses that became one of our earlier clients was actually a business that I had 
you know, worked with at Fanatic and with one of the owners who reached out to me many months later and said, his name's Victor and still, I think to this date, level 99 would not exist had it not been for, you know, the amount of care and sort of diligence and sort of believing in us he did early. He signed us up later on as a client and said, I want you guys to work with me, you know, that was just based off the fact that he believed that we would put him first and still wanted to make a living. It really did boil down to working with people who felt that we could solve their their challenges and that we would do the best, you know, we'd figure out the best way to solve those. That's really how the agency was born. It was just, hey, figure out our problems and if you can, we'll pay you for it. And then of course, others realized that we could and more folks said, hey, we have this problem, we need a logo or we need an idea of how to run our social media channels and why they should work that way. We just looked at the data, we were part of the community ourselves, and that's how it built. You know, that's literally how it, how it started. We, and then you've now grown, and this is coming from your LinkedIn profile, but you're now, what, 30 in headcount, and it's you've now four years into your business. And, I mean, obviously throughout that, I thought the stuff that's really interesting, and we touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but it's these big brands that are coming in and these big groups that are acquiring you know, these esports teams and it's, they're becoming part of the, you know, the same portfolio of teams that the Red Sox might be in or um, like oh, you yeah. were talking about with the Canucks, you know, like you've, there are all these really cool conversations you're having and it's actually even opening up the doors for you to do other things outside of esports, right? Yeah, I think spot on. I was almost giggling, I think, when we talked about this. So for me, as somebody who went to university in Vancouver, sort of Vancouver and Kelowna, another city nearby at UBC, the Canucks were sort of the, that was a franchise that you just had to, you could not avoid. It was just in your face. And for me, moving from the Middle East to Canada, hockey became something that I didn't, I'm not saying that I went to every hockey game, but that became part of my culture, you know, and seeing the Canucks and thousands of people go to games. And of course, I also paid to go to games, not much back then, but it meant a lot, (laughs) you know, when you bought a ticket to go from that when I was in university to now, you know, we did to the Vancouver Canucks ended up buying a, or two, buying into two franchise leagues. So essentially they bought in two different esport titles that have, imagine the NBA, but for Overwatch or for Call of Duty. And they ended up buying into this and we ended up helping them sort of work with them and figure out how to launch that brand. We, I mean, I was sitting in the Rogers Arena watching an on-ice projection that we'd help put together and a launch plan that was that really had launched esports for this hockey team that I grew up in the last four years when I was in university at least loving. And I'm sitting in the room with the same people who are responsible for leading that team and that business. And it was it was a bit surreal, <laughs> you know? Did that kind of does it hit you a little bit to be like, wow. Like, I'm oh. doing the right thing now. <laughs> I think I made the right decision. I, like, this is so cool. I was just, I think even now when I think of it, I was just humbled that people like that would would trust sort of young team to help them out with their gaming stuff, you know? Them and somebody else that they worked with, Steve, to another team that they'd purchased, who was a really, really solid guy as well. It was just relationships and then trying to solve problems for them, yeah. you know? Whether I can tell you if it's the right thing or not, I'm still a bit starstruck with everybody. I'm still starstruck that we work with the New York Mets and their team, Rohit and Farzam. And I, you know, if I think about it for a couple of minutes every day, I'm 
bit speechless. So yeah, it feels like the right thing to do and the right people are trusting us. So I think that's a sign that we're doing the right thing, yeah. you know? We, and congratulations on bringing it, you know, so far and into this new new world. I mean, what do you think is next for esports and the future of esports? And what do you think is next really for your agency? I'm sure this is stuff that you guys think about constantly. Where do you, you know, where do you guys <laughs> want to go with this? That's a deeper rabbit hole, but just in terms of where we're headed, I think that for us it's been humbling still to solve other people's challenges. But I think we've, over the last few years, forgotten that we have our own challenges that we'd like mm -hmm. solving. We'd like to, you know, put out, not just do the stuff we're doing right now and we love deeply, but I would like to try my hand at creating an actual product or a sort of a tech product even that will help people, you know, not businesses specifically, but just, you know, people like you and me, like folks who use things that provide them value, you know? I'd like to do that through the lens of, you know, the culture we've built. And, you know, you say congrats and I really appreciate it. But for me, the people that I have worked with, even though I've not always agreed with everyone that I worked with, and I, that's a key part of Level 99, you know, we want to respect each other, but we don't want, I don't expect our guys to like right. each other. I don't go into the office and say, you should like this, but no, it's, you have to earn respect from the people you work with. If you like each other, that's a bonus. So the congrats is I've been really fortunate over the years to just work with people who are helping me see what we should do next and helping me build that. And I'm telling you, if you ask the same question to any 99er, they might tell you something different. And if they make a compelling enough case for that thing, I want to do that thing, you know, because I believe in the people that we work with here. Like they are the ones who've done all this. I've kind of, I'm just the guy who gets to do the podcast. <laughs> you know? It was amazing to speak to Saad this week and explore his impressive and unique journey along with the growth of esports. If you want to learn more about Level 99, check out their website at www.level99.co. Thank you to all our listeners. Join us again next week. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button.